0: are mortgaged, and our minds are media
1: Welcome to the Convergence on Voice America. This is your series host, Dr. Kurt Johnson of the Interspiritual Network and Unity Earth. As we move into our fifth year on Voice America and celebrate our over 100,000 listeners, we're proud to be bringing you two special broadcasts with humanity's team, the Conscious Business Institute and the Conscious Business Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders. These two Voice America specials are entitled, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World 1 and 2. And they are evergreen presentations from major business and thought leaders on the important topic of conscious business. These two Voice America specials accompany the first issue of our new magazine imprint, Conscious Business, which first issue is entitled also, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World. Our magazines have some 200,000 readers, and we think Conscious Business will be a great addition. You can find all three of our magazines, Light on Light, The Convergence, and Conscious Business, at www.issuu.com and at www.lightonlight.us. Again, all the issues are at www.issuu.com slash lightonlight. Or you can just Google Light on Light magazine, the Convergence magazine, and the Conscious Business magazine. The special broadcast that you'll be hearing now is the first of the Two Voice America specials and is entitled Conscious Business for a Flourishing World One. It features important world-class business and thought leaders interviewed by our selected guest hosts for these two Voice America specials, who are also the guest editors of our new magazine, Conscious Business. The roots of these important productions go back to the historic Conscious Business Declaration of 2015 and the subsequent Conscious Business World Summit, hosted online in March 2019 by Humanity's team, the Conscious Business Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders, and Unity Earth. And as I just said in my introduction to these two special Voice America episodes, we're moving ahead now with the production of the new magazine, Conscious Business. The contents of this new imprint will get a great introduction in the interviews and discussions that you are about to hear in these two Voice America specials, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World One and Conscious Business for a Flourishing World Two. So I'm joined today by the two guest editors of Conscious Business and Conscious Business for a Flourishing World, Steve Farrell, Worldwide Executive Director of Humanities Team, and Peter Matisse, founder of the Conscious Business Institute, and also by Deborah Moldau, the International Coordinator of the Evolutionary Leaders. Steve and Peter are not only the guest editors of the magazine, but the principal interviewers of the business and thought leaders that you'll hear on these special Voice America broadcasts. More complete bios for each of them are at the Voice America show page, and the relevant websites are www.humanitysteam.org, www.consciousbusinessinstitute.com, and www.evolutionaryleaders.net. You'll also be hearing a message from each of these organizations during the program. So, Steve Farrell, let's start with you. Tell us about the roots of the Conscious Business Declaration and the subsequent 2019 Conscious Business World Summit.
2: You bet. Thank you, Kurt. And um, so if we're going to move beyond this existential threat to the earth, uh, business must become conscious that sounds pretty serious, and it is. Uh, Now, uh, a number of organizations have advanced uh, business in very progressive direction. B Corp and B Lab uh, kind of started this thing out, creating this focus on people, planet, and profit, which moves us in a very constructive direction, and then conscious capitalism came along and started using the term conscious uh, with business. And and again, they're constructive features in the work that they're doing. But these organizations with their focus uh, did not bring real consciousness, the fullness of consciousness to business. And this is why back in uh, 2014 and then culminating in uh, a declaration in 2015, why four NGOs uh, decided to create a conscious business declaration and to focus uh, in, a, in an extensive way on, on creating conscious business globally. And those four organizations are Humanities Team, of which I'm a part, the Club of Budapest, based in Europe, the Goy Peace Foundation, based in Japan, and the Fowler Center for Business as an agent for public benefit out of Case Western Reserve University, also in the United States. And, and these four NGOs... Uh, we, we spent a year creating a declaration that you can read at ConsciousBusinessDeclaration.org that lay out the essential features of what conscious business is. Uh, the, the first uh, feature I'll just read to you. It says, we are one with humanity and all of life. Business and all institutions of the human community are integral parts of a single reality, interrelated, interconnected, and interdependent. So we're just staking out that businesses don't operate in silos. In fact, nothing operates in silos. And that's the whole point, that modern science, quantum physics, and modern science are sharing that everything is deeply interconnected. And so uh, business needs to play an important role. This is actually what consciousness is. Now what this declaration drives at is that everything's connected, that we actually, you could even say, are all one. Uh, that, there, uh, that inner journey is important. And, and what inner journey is is, 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 is this process of going within and creating being states that restore this rhythm, uh, this connection with the rhythm of life. Uh, because uh, in unconscious business, we, you know, we're just not in touch with the rhythm of life. So we can create G- GMOs and we can create certain kinds of animal farming and we can create media that's not serving life. Consciousness essentially is that which is life affirming, life sustaining, and life enhancing. It's about as simple as that. Consciousness equals life. So when we talk about conscious business, we're talking about nurturing life. Uh, so, so that's what uh, that's what this initiative is. And then the World Summit in March 2019 was a summit that brought together thought leaders from all over the world. Uh, that there are. Uh, Are doing important work here, talking about their work as thought leaders or or as as business leaders, where they're creating real conscious business, uh, where 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 it's really about more than like business talking points, where it's really more of a movement. Because I go back to where I started, that if we're going to move beyond the existential threat to the earth, business must become conscious. That's a very serious thing to share, and there are a lot of people doing serious work to address this.
1: Well, great, Steve. Thanks so much for really telling us about those deeper meanings of the Conscious Business Declaration and then the uh, Conscious Business World Summit. So, Peter, now you're one of the two guest editors for the special magazine issue, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World. So can you tell us about the magazine and what you really hope to achieve by its production and by these two special broadcasts on Voice America? Who are the guests in the magazine and who are the guests that we've assembled for these two Voice America specials? Yeah, thanks, Kurt. I'm happy to do that. Uh, The intention for the magazine is really twofold.
3: The first one is to uh, familiarize people with conscious business and its principles. Uh, that, uh, the idea that there's really another, a better way to work and succeed, because many people just simply don't believe that that's the case. Um, and the second intention is to what I call bridge heaven and earth. The first uh, component, the heaven component, is really speak to the vision of what is possible if we would rethink business. Uh, If in our changing times, if we would reimagine what business could be, what could we create? What could we create as professionals working inside an organization, but also as business leaders maybe owning or managing a company? And the second component of that is the earth component, which is to make it practical, to provide approaches and proven tool sets that individuals at all levels in an organization can consider if they would like to embrace conscious business principles and then to include case studies and practical examples to, to under, underscore that. You see, um, what I find is that at this point in time, there are a lot of people speaking about the need to transform the way we work and conduct business. In this magazine, what we want to do is to not just speak about it, but to provide concrete steps and ideas to get there. Um, And lastly, the intention is, because I founded the Conscious Business Institute in 2005, so I've been at this for more than 15 years now, Um, I have seen many people jump into the Conscious Business ring and wanting to play, but it is still very, very fragmented. There are some people in Australia, in Sweden, in Italy, in the United States. So if we would like to make a difference as a collective, we need to pull together. We need to become a force in the world. And we hope that this magazine can help with that. Um, Now, to your second question, to the guests, we've really split the magazine in three parts. The first part is to provide a vision and a framework for conscious business. What is possible? And uh, to provide maybe the philosophical philosophical framework behind conscious business. Um, The second part is then what are the elements if you want to build a conscious business? How do you build a conscious culture? How do you lead in a more conscious way? How do you do the self-transformation and self-reflection that's necessary if you want to become a conscious business professional? How do you build organizations where people really want to work? So, there are certain frameworks, certain elements that are necessary that we need to become aware of if we want to bring it into an organization. And the last section, the third section, is to provide practice examples. Personal experience where have individuals have gone through personal transformation towards conscious leadership. Case studies from businesses where we can learn about what really works if, if we go through conscious business programs, for example, and what doesn't. What are the pitfalls? What are the stumbling stones that we need to become aware of? So for all of these three um, sections, the vision section, the elements for business building, building conscious business, and the practical section, we have really amazing individuals that we've collected. Uh, for the first section, for example, we have Ken Wilber, who, as you may know, developed the integral theory, theory and maybe the framework for building a better world and with that also conscious businesses. So the philosophical framework behind Conscious business, maybe we have uh, Paul Pullman, for example, the former CEO of Unilever, because he put conscious business principles to work and tells us in this interview how can it be done in the corporate environment. And then in the applied section, uh, where we we take Ken's integral framework and make it practical for organizations, so that anybody, uh, any CEO, can take it and apply it to their leadership. And lastly, in the practice section, we have CEOs from companies that manage 70 people, for example, that have gone through conscious business journeys, have fallen into some traps, maybe, uh, but created organizations that are now working better than before, and they'll share the experience in a very tangible way. So, um, for the Voice America, we've then selected some of these authors, Ken, Paul, Ronaldo Brutico, for example, Erwin Laszlo, Devin Sloan Wilson, uh, because we find that in this radio show we can broadcast this to more people but also go on a deeper level. So we're very excited to share this with you and with our audience so we can all learn from this magazine and also the, the radio shows. Well,
1: no, Peter, thanks. That's a great uh, rundown and it's obvious that we're really in for an exciting ride in both the magazine and in these Voice America broadcasts and uh, we're really pleased that we've been able to move from the Conscious Business Declaration of 2015 to the summit in 2019, and now on to actually creating this uh, whole new magazine itself, uh, Conscious Business, of which this will be the, uh, you know, the first issue. So, uh, Deborah, I understand that many of these activities that resulted in both the Conscious Business World Summit and in the magazine issue, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World... Not to mention the Voice America specials we're on right now have involved a synergy circle on conscious business from the evolutionary leaders of which uh, here now actually all of us are a part. So, Deborah, could you tell us about the evolutionary leaders and specifically about its conscious business synergy circle?
4: Yes. Thank you so much, Kurt. I'm really excited to be with you and Steve and Peter on this program to explore fresh ideas for conscious business for a flourishing world. As you mentioned, I'm the director of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, which is a project of the Source of Synergy Foundation. This is a unique community of 170 visionaries, including authors, scientists, social engineers, spiritual leaders, and educators, all of whose work is on the cutting edge of the current Transformation of Human Consciousness, and I'm happy to say that its members include you, Kurt, and Steve, and Peter, and I, and uh, many, many wonderful, brilliant visionaries. So as this community of evolutionary leaders grew, we realized that we needed to provide a way for these leaders who are working in related fields to come together and share their projects and their wisdom among themselves. And that was the birth of the Synergy Circles. The Conscious Business Synergy Circle is an outstanding example. It began as a conversation between Steve Farrell of Humanities Team, and Kurt Johnson of Unity Earth at a gathering of international leaders in Crestone, Colorado. And I joined this leadership team as director of the Evolutionary Leaders, and we launched this Conscious Business Synergy Circle as an open circle. And that means that we invited both members of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle and also others who are passionate about business as a potentially powerful agent of change, like Peter Matisse of Conscious Business Institute. So there are currently 53 members in the Synergy Circle, and each one is playing a unique role in urging business toward new models of success based on the principles of higher consciousness and on the Conscious Business Declaration that Steve was describing. So the first project of the Conscious Business Synergy Circle was to plan a Conscious Business World Summit that was hosted by Humanity's team with Unity Earth and the evolutionary leaders. And that took place uh, from March 7th to 9th in this year, 2019. And it featured fascinating explorations of various aspects of what it takes for business to put its heart before its head. And meanwhile, a special issue of the Convergence online magazine focused on Conscious Business came out in February, just in advance of the summit. And now we have a new magazine edition coming out, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World, as well as this Voice America special. So lots has been happening. So I'd like to say just a little bit more about the Synergy Circles of the the Evolutionary Leaders community and their potential. The synergy circles are forming up across many passion areas, as well as in various local uh, local areas. And our host, Kurt Johnson, is helping to organize a number of these as great opportunities for thought leaders and sacred and secular activists of all kinds to come together in many exciting initiatives and activities. Some of which will be open to visionaries working in the same arena who are not in the circle. And another way to participate with members of the evolutionary leaders community, as Kurt notes in his commentaries on the show as well, are the upcoming events across the Unity Earth Network for 2020, the Road to 2020 and the Caravans of Unity across America and Europe and elsewhere. So anyone who'd like to stay informed about all of these exciting opportunities, everyone out there who's at the edge of the current transformation of consciousness, is invited to visit visit EvolutionaryLeaders.net and sign the call to conscious evolution. And then you'll receive our newsletter, The Edge, to keep you up to date. So now the uh, Conscious Business Synergy Circle is ready to pull our wisdom and our vision to advance the cause of business as the lever that can move the world. Thank you.
5: Thanks so much, Steve Farrell, Peter Matisse, and Deborah Moldau for that general introduction to the new magazine imprint, Conscious Business, its first issue, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World, and these two exciting Voice America specials, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World 1 and Conscious Business for a Flourishing World 2. We're excited to move right over to the interviews that Steve, Peter, and Deborah have highlighted for us. But before that, I have recently had the opportunity to spend some significant time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama at his residence in Dharamshala, India, with another important thought leader, Dr. David Sloan Wilson, who is significant to this entire discussion on business economics and world change, not only through his intimate work with Nobel Prize winner in economics, Dr. Eleanor Ostrom, but also his own renowned work in cultural evolution, through the Evolution Institute, Pro Social Magazine, Pro Social World, and the website Evonomics. At our gathering in India, His Holiness was outspoken, among other things, that two grave dangers that might well sink our species into extinction include climate change on the one hand, and then the prevalent toxic mindset so many of our global political and le- business leaders have that greed is good and that that can go on forever in our current reckless and brine rubric of business as usual. So I've asked Dr. Wilson to join us to make some general overview comments that can further set up the importance of the interviews that you're about to hear on these two Voice America specials and also see in the upcoming issues of the new magazine, Imprint Conscious Business. So welcome, David. These were exciting and urgent discussions that we just had with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in India. So can you tell us, just as an overview, about the urgency of this landscape regarding conscious business and what you see as the critical context that we must address now at a planetary level, especially as to the urgency of our getting our cultural evolution moving in a healthy and sustainable direction and what figures in here regarding economics and conscious business.
6: Okay, Kurt, thank you very much. And I'm really happy to have this opportunity to uh, talk with you again. So soon after we spent time together in Dharamsala uh, and to talk to this uh, particular group of conscious business, um, business leaders, which can be a key uh, group. So let's just get started. I think uh, the urgent challenges of the world, there's a consensus on that. I would certainly agree with His Holiness, and it has much to do with the fact that uh, the, the main Buddhist theme of suffering and suffering caused by greed is is the where, is where Buddhism uh, Buddhism uh, begins. All of our strivings um, as individuals and as businesses will get there. Um, so often leads to disruptions up the scale, uh, especially at the global scale. So, uh, and it's not just climate change, it's, um, there's many other problems that are um, coming to rest at the global scale. And, and more or less, they're the cause of, of various forms of greed and striving at, uh, at lower, lower uh, uh, scales. So, so um, it turns out that another body of information, we have Buddhism that makes that point over its 2,500 year history. Uh, and then we have evolutionary theory which can rebut to bear on that topic during its nearly 160 year uh, um, history. And my opportunity to discuss these two bodies of thought with His Holiness was certainly a high point of my life. When we think about the place of conscious business, I think that's quite conflicted because uh, especially in America, there's a a whole uh, suite of attitudes surrounding business uh, and economics, which is very much in its own way like the center of the problem. If by business we mean um, uh, Milton Friedman's dictum that the only responsibility of a business is to maximize profits for its shareholders um, so that this does provide a, a justification for greed is good. Um, and I wanna say that this is actually a moral stance Friedman was not a bad man. He had a particular set of beliefs that if businesses only attended to their business, then that's the way society would work best in the long run. Uh, those businesses would be led as if by an invisible hand to benefit the common good. So the greatest good narrative is a moral narrative. Uh, unfortunately, it just isn't true. In fact, it is profoundly not the case. And so, I think for businesses to, to uh, become part of the solution rather than part of the problem, then they need to be among the leaders of rejecting that particular narrative and taking up a new uh, narrative. Having said that the narrative is new, I need to add that it's both old and new because if you go back to previous periods of time in American history only you know you know 70 years ago not 50 years ago and business as practiced uh, by other nations and other cultures what you find is is that well you might call it a greater sense of responsibility that a business like a person would be responsible would be compassionate would be other oriented uh, would do things for the benefit of all and would be prepared to Shoulder it 's bear the load and in the process of of doing it, would be a solid citizen in every way that we already understand and take for granted in groups of individuals that are cooperating well with each other and so there is actually a, a plan b an, an alternative way of thinking and and behaving, which on the one hand is deeply familiar because it is the way social interactions typically take place at a small scale, but now can also be given a an authoritative scientific justification uh, in the form of evolutionary theory, which I might add had its own "greed is good" phase during the 1960s. There's a lot of people associate evolution with with the Richard Dawkins "selfish gene" or or with the social Darwinism, all of which are really of the greed is good variety. But uh, but to modern evolutionary theory, the point that I made to his holiness was that when I entered the field of evolution as a graduate student in the 1970s, that was its greed is good era. But now so much has happened. So much has happened that we need to embrace and, and put into use. And that's where um, what I represent, not just myself, but what I represent is so very important for everyone to, to, um, uh, to know. And I think the relevance of my work can be, can be divided into two broad areas. One is a narrative area that we need to, we basically establish a, a worldview, a cosmology, a paradigm. Um, you might even call it a religion that, um, that um, can oppose the greed is good narrative. Uh, that's what evolution can do in a way that I think some, almost nothing else could do. A combination of evolutionary theory and, and complexity theory can provide the kind of explanatory framework that, that uh, most people hunger for, that there's some way of thinking that can, that can help us in almost any area of our of our lives, that's certainly part of the attraction of religion, and that for those of us who also value science and adhering to the facts of the world, the idea that there could be a a theory that could that could provide that kind of explanatory scope is um, is uh, a, a deeply important. And so, this view of life—that's uh, the way Darwin ended *The Origin of Species*. Um, there is grandeur in this view of life, so that needs to be taught more widely, and does provide this, this worldview, therefore an antidote to the, to the uh, greed is good paradigm, which has its own justification in terms of orthodox economics and all of that. So there's a, a kind of a battle of narratives taking place that is an important battle, and that's part of my work. The other part is to use evolutionary theory as a practical toolkit And I love the toolkit metaphor because a toolkit is something that a carpenter or a plumber brings to his job and and sizes up the job and pulls out the right tools, gets the job done, and then moves on to the next job. Is there a way that um, uh, that we could use evolutionary theory at that level also? And the answer to that is yes. Um, That's where the work of Eleanor Ostrom comes in. I'm so lucky to have been... uh, to uh, to work with such uh, amazing people, such as uh, His Holiness and Eleanor Ostrom and Kurt Johnson and and uh, and uh, and uh, and, um, and Ostrom won the Nobel Prize for uh, studying the famous tragedy of the commons. Uh, this is the tendency of groups attempting to manage common pool of resources to um, overexploit the resource. I remember trying to take more than their share. And uh, economic wisdom held that this tragedy will always occur unless, unless uh, uh, you uh, privatize the resource or, or impose top-down regulation. And what Ostrom showed is that actually some common pool resource groups can manage their, their resources on their own, can avoid the tragedy of the commons, but only if they if they uh, exhibit certain core design principles. Eight core design principles were like a recipe for success for this particular kind of group. And uh, Kurt, I need you to give me a time check to see as to how deep a dive I can take into the core design principles. Oh, we've got a good six or seven minutes left, David, no problem at all. Well, I'm gonna keep my readers in suspense as to actually what these eight core design principles are. Um, they're easy enough to look them up on the um, our website presocial.world or or um, uh, my writings I think we can provide resources the most important thing to say in those five or six minutes is that uh, these principles uh, are the reason that they're core is because they're needed for cooperation in a group that implements them then it's very difficult to benefit yourself at the expense of others, and so therefore they facilitate teamwork, that's point one, and point two, because of their generality, they are needed by all kinds of groups, uh, including business groups, and we've made a special study of this, so what I can say, science tells us now, we have quite a lot of proof, that not only do businesses need these core principles, as well as any other kind of groups, perhaps even more, because, Business environments are are um, highly um, highly competitive. Of course, members of business groups need to, to uh, cooperate, uh, but also that on average business groups fail to implement them more than other kinds of groups. And I think a large reason for that is because of this other narrative, which is making sense basically of practices, which are in fact not useful um, useful practices. So I think to conclude, this very short introduction. Uh, Businesses are capital, businesses are a very important sector of society. I think one of the biases of American life is to think that businesses are like the most important and to inflate the importance of business as opposed to government or labor or... The fact is is that businesses should always have a certain kind of humility in terms of the role that they play in life and, and to cooperate with other sectors of society. Again, we have all the science we need to show that the nations that function best have a vibrant business sector, and that sector interacts cooperatively with a, with a strong government and a strong labor sector. And it's there where you have them, they function as, as equal actors that collaborate at the scale of the of the uh, nation, and so a business needs to conceive itself as first and foremost pro-social, having the welfare of the whole society in mind, actually the whole earth in mind. I, um, uh, evolution leads to the same conclusion as His Holiness, as uh, the need for a whole earth ethic. That means going beyond religion, and it also means going beyond any narrow form of business mentality. And so businesses, like other actors, need to have the welfare, the common good in mind, and it has to be the common planetary good. And then it has to use its its resources in order to do that, while, of course, remaining strong as a social unit in its own right. That means staying alive and prosperous and and, uh, doing well by its members in addition to doing well in the larger uh, community. So I think there is a theory for that. And this particular movement, this conscious business uh, movement, I think uh, can be playing an important role, especially to the extent that it it becomes part of this overarching uh, worldview that we call this view of life.
5: Now, that's great, David, and that's such a good prelude to what's coming. Now, we actually have a couple, three more minutes here, so I'd love to have you tell us about your own super activist work based on this new narrative that's now mainstreamed in science and what you're doing with ProSocial and with ProSocial Magazine, ProSocial World, and different projects that you have on deck
6: right now, which are really exciting. Sure. I'd uh, love to. So ProSocial, you could uh, uh, look up prosocial.world, www.prosocial.world. You'll get to our website with lots and lots of resources. But uh, basically, we're putting Eleanor Ostrom's work plus other work I didn't get a chance to talk about based on mindfulness-based Um, training techniques which enable both individuals and groups to align evolutionary forces, cultural and personal evolutionary forces, with normative goals. And so we're working with groups around the world. It's terribly exciting, including business groups. I'm working among others with uh, Jonathan Haidt and his organization, EthicalSystems.org. We're trying to create a um, collaborative uh, Uh, corporate uh, consortium, uh, basically um, um, collaborations with business corporations who want to partner with us and really manage their cultural evolution. I think that project is very similar to the Conscious Business Project. I'm working with someone else named Michael Pearson, who's a business professor at Fordham University, University, to uh, revise the business curriculum so uh, that's another important point to make is that uh, there's so many parallel efforts. It seems that uh, a lot of people are, are more or less seeing the same light and, and driving towards the same goal, but often independently of each other, even without knowledge of each other. And so there's a real need not only to, to establish these movements and to play a role in them, but also to join up with other movements. Because if those movements get siloed, that would be a terrible thing. We um, we need to really be be humble in the role that we play, and we need to achieve by cultivating, by making a contribution, and cultivating a great reputation amongst the other movements that are that are um, taking place. The movements need to cooperate uh, with each other, and so uh, so. There's a very brief glimpse of some of the things that we're doing to put these important ideas into use in a in a toolkit fashion.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting that many of our discussions and things that you and I have done together have been about this realization that secular activism and, sec- and uh, sacred activism really end up joining together when it comes to the moral imperative and the behavioral principles that would guide just altruistic behavior, aside from what, it, uh, uh, what other narrative is behind that, be it more secular, be it more sacred. And certainly Ken Wilber, who you've met and done several programs with and speaks later in these programs, says again that it's not the worldview that's important. It's the uh, behavioral developmental level that's being acted out uh, within that worldview. And that one of the things we have to address worldwide is that all of those behaviors from the best to the worst occur across all the narratives and the eye needs to be on the behavior and not so much on the narrative. And this is exactly what Uh, His Holiness was saying when we were in India and why he's putting so much effort, particularly with young people, into education programs that allow them to steer in the very direction that you talk about when you talk about altruism and a pro-social world based now on on modern evolutionary theory. So any comment there?
6: Yeah, do I have one more minute? Yeah, totally. Okay, so I think the two final comments to wrap up and to also to to uh, keep uh, the, the His Holiness in the um, in the picture is that there's there's two things that are that are needed. Uh, one is a spiritual dimension, but that spiritual dimension can be either secular or religious, and uh, and there is some a common denominator to spirituality. One of the things that we're studying that, among other things is to subordinate lower level interest to some kind of higher good. I think that's one common denominator of spirituality, which we can feel as religious believers, as environmentalists, and in any number of ways, the idea that there's something out there that's more important than we are and that we therefore become servants to that cause is uh, an important ingredient of spirituality. And then the second point is, is that there has to be a, social organization dimension to this, not just an inner psychological dimension. And that was a, perhaps the most important point i tried to convey to His Holiness during our conversation, that uh, the, transforming our outer lives, making the world a better place, ultimately, at the global scale, is not as simple as merely transforming our inner lives, cultivating a state of compassion. There's all kinds of social organizational aspects that need to be worked on that need to be multi-level. And that's what the core design principles are all about. So we need to work on transforming both our inner lives and our outer lives. And do you know there's a blueprint for doing it? So let's get to work.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So David Sloan Wilson, this is such a great introduction to what's coming on the programs now with our interviews with uh, Paul Pullman and Ronaldo Brudico. Jude Kuravan, Irvin Laszlo, and Ken Wilber. And uh, yes, what an incredible opportunity that we've had recently to be with His Holiness in India and get his expression of not only his concerns, but his forward-looking direction. So David, we're really so happy you could make the time to join us here on Voice America. And we're going to go now directly over to the interviews just after we have a short break for a message from one of our Voice America and Unity Earth partners.
7: Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Farrell, the Worldwide Executive Director for Humanities Team. I'm going to share with you a little about Humanities Team and our transformational education programs. Humanities Team is a 501c3 nonprofit. We have no shareholders. Our shareholders, if you want to call them that, are the 7 billion people who inhabit the earth and the earth herself. We are all about aligning with the divine and life and creating flourishing for individuals, communities, countries, and the whole of the earth. As you know, we are not adequately providing for a great percentage of the human population at this time, and we are not stewarding the earth in a mature way. Much remains to be done. This is why planetary awakening and living into the unity of all of life is so important. To address this, Humanities Team offers transformational education programs, including many free programs, You can find these on the HumanitiesTeam.org website. Important thought leaders have partnered with us to bring the very best in transformational online education to the global market space. Presently, we offer powerful and inexpensive programs addressing the science of self-empowerment with Greg Braden, Bruce Lipton, and HeartMath leaders Deborah Rosman and Howard Martin and a program called Our Final Frontier, Journey to Mastery and Living with Neil Donald Walsh and other programs that you can review on our website. You can check out all of our powerful transformational education programs, including our free programs at humanitiesteam.org. Thank you so much.
1: Welcome back to the Convergence on Voice America. Our program is Conscious Business for a Flourishing World, and we're just about to hear interviews with prominent thought leaders on this topic. So I'm here with Peter Matisse, founder of the Conscious Business Institute, one of the hosts of this special Voice America program. So Peter, you had an opportunity to interview at length Paul Pullman. So Peter, if you can introduce Paul and give us a bit of an introduction about this interview, and then we can go right over to it. Yes, Kurt, thank you. I have the opportunity
3: for a rich discussion with Paul Pullman. Aside from being a truly remarkable individual, Paul is the former CEO of Unilever. In his 10 years as CEO, he turned Unilever into one of the most well-known examples for more sustainable and conscious business practices. He focused Unilever on making a social impact and at the same time delivered eight years of top-line growth that was on average twice as high as the overall market growth. Paul stepped down from his position as CEO in November 2018. He has now created a new organization called Imagine which helps businesses eradicate poverty and inequality and addresses global climate change issues. In our discussion, Paul speaks from his experience as a CEO about how to build more conscious and sustainable businesses. He'll address how to deal with some of the obstacles, such as ensuring positive shareholder returns. And he'll also give some practical advice for company leaders on how to create healthier organizations.
1: Okay, great Peter and thanks. So let's go right over now for this discussion between Peter Matisse and Paul Pullman.
3: Hello, Paul. It's wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much on the being on the show today. Thank
8: you, Peter, for the opportunity.
3: Yeah, I read that in your earlier years, that what, that's what I would like to start with. You considered becoming a priest, and then a doctor, um, to lead a life of service. Um, growing up, what do you think it was that made you want to move in that direction, I'm curious. And how were you able to integrate this desire into your work?
8: I grew up in the Netherlands on the uh, eastern part of the Netherlands I was born in 1956 at that time I thought it was a long time after the Second World War but the older I get I noticed how close it was and um, my parents uh, we grew up in a family of six and uh, my father worked in a factory there and my mother was a teacher and uh, they met actually in Boy Scouts so uh, early age we were involved in Boy Scouts and I think started to understand the value of living in harmony with Planet Earth and uh, and the community obviously that we worked in was very important to have that function so uh, my parents always were taking care of people uh, involved in church community and activities and other things and then you know, as my mother being a teacher, education in our family was important. We were not allowed to escape to home without having passed the test, and uh, it put a higher burden on us, I think, to, to deliver. and we've always benefited from that but i also saw that i was fortunate to be born in the netherlands and where education was paid for and we were fortunate enough to have uh, all, all of the six siblings do very well so some of the principles that came out of that is, is hard to synthesize that but i think what i definitely got from my parents is the uh, dignity and respect for everybody and I strongly believe in the equal opportunity or equity for everybody, having benefited from that myself, and then a certain level of compassion in terms of putting yourself to the service of others or trying to put yourself in the shoes of others, and I think these values have very much helped me as well in my uh, business career as I progressed.
3: Yeah, thank you for giving us that context. Um makes me think that's oftentimes in in stark contrast of what we see of experience in the business world. We've all heard the phrase, it's not personal, it's just business, which seems to excuse many destructive behaviors that you see just to achieve a business result to make some money. During the decades of your career, um, did you feel you had to place these personal values aside in order to go grow and become successful?
8: Well, it's a good question because if you look uh, basically at the statistics, uh, and I'm not sure it's different for many countries, but you know, if you read that only 13 percent of the people are engaged at work. And that's a very sad statistic if you think at how much time we spent there. And at the same time, you see the mental stress and, and issues related to that going up. So there definitely is something. And um, I got a call uh, once from uh, Archbishop uh, Nichols, a uh, Roman Catholic bishop here, um, when I was in the UK, and he told me, uh, you know, we have a problem because too many people in my congregation feel that the values they live at home are not lived at work, and that causes an enormous amount of stress if those are not um, aligned and uh, I've also always believed that in order to be successful in a company you have a higher chance of being successful if your personal values are aligned with the company values and by the way in that way, if that is the case, you also strengthen the company values because, at the end of the day, it's an amalgamation of the the people that are working there. If they are aligned, you don't have to wear a mask, and you know, obviously, don't have to feel unhappy, and you can develop yourself to your fullest potential. In my career, at least, I've been very fortunate to work for three wonderful companies: P&G, Nestle, and Unilever, which all have about 150 years of experience and, and have been around for a building to last versus built to sell and i think part of that reason is because they have these uh, strong values uh, in the unilever case things like integrity or respect or pioneering or responsibility are things that come to mind. So although these values might evolve over time um, and some of them have different emphases, I think I've been very fortunate. But, you know, in the different parts of your careers, your values are being challenged more often by behaviors of people around you or bosses that might have different objectives. You know, these are big companies and you find everything. Obviously, you try to make the total work, but on an individual level, you see some of that and you have to deal with that and you learn as much from that if, as you climb up. Uh, sometimes too much emphasis in some of these companies on against the shareholders that result in some dysfunctional behavior, in my opinion, have taught me things. And when I finally got to the opportunity of being the CEO of Unilever, it allowed me with a stronger conviction, if I may say, to take some of these learnings into account and, and hope to apply that in a company of this size and scale that I was fortunate enough to lead in the last 10 years.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's so pressing because you mentioned the employee engagement studies. I just read uh, the Gallup uh, the recent Gallup employee engagement study again, and engagement keeps being low. Burnout is on the yeah. rise. More than forty percent of all the diseases yeah. are now caused by workplace stress. It says so. When you when you're in those kind of situations, maybe a man a middle manager that gets pressure from the top, but also from the bottom to perform, yeah. uh, and then. Their request to be more humane maybe in those critical situations where those values are at stake, and maybe your career as well with that how how would you recommend to operate as a middle manager
8: yeah it's, uh the pressures are are obviously um High, and a high degree of uh, burnout as well with the pace of change and lots of people feeling that the system isn 't fully functioning for them anymore, so that that is uh, first of all in the company itself, you need to be very mindful of that when you read these statistics, you should not assume that you 'll be excluded from that, and we spend a lot of time to working the different parts of what I call the pyramid to deal with that and provide physical fitness or emotional fitness or mental fitness or ultimately spiritual fitness or what more and more people are going are calling now purpose and i think it's very important that any company takes care of that that if we have to become more agile in this fast-changing world that we also think about the resilience that comes with that you know as an individual when you have to deal with these pressures of of sometimes conflicting values in a company, and where the messages might be different from from what comes from one side of the organization or another side, I think the best thing you can do is continue to be true to yourself as much as you can. I know not everybody in every position in a company might have that uh, flexibility, and uh, might be dependent on the, uh, the, um, the 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 salary or some of the other things that come with having a job but broadly we are people that can move around uh, employment is tight even in the us right now and if you feel that your values are not being lived in the company I think you'll have to call that out in a constructive way, and uh, and if no action is taken, or if, if that is an accepted measure, I think you'll have to move somewhere else. We've seen clearly between industries that people are moving, where some industries are far more attractive than others. Uh, Unilever, when I led it, was the third most looked up company in LinkedIn, and got two million people applying every year. And one of the reasons they applied was about the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which was such a strong purpose driven plan. And if you can make that come along in a company that's an enormous amount of energy not only was our employer brand very strong or is very strong but the engagement scores are always in the top of the top tercile but if you deal with these pressures and depending where you're on in the organization I think don't eat it up uh, by yourself and don't keep them inside of you but uh, in, in mechanisms like mentoring or or um, coaching uh, and, and hopefully opportunities to communicate uh, you have to flush that out before before it eats you up I know it's not easy in, in to do that and many companies might not have the culture that allows you to do that but then it's probably time to look at alternatives for yourself you only yeah. have one precious life and you want to spend your time well
3: <laughs> that's always a you good know? point yeah Um, I'm I'm curious in building cultures when we speak to organizations and ask them how do you actually build a culture most of them just shrug their shoulders and they say well you you walk it there doesn't seem to be a structured approach for building a culture Um, so when you were the CEO of an organization um, how what, what made Unilever so successful in attracting people and, and improving employee engagement? What was it? Was it the purpose? Was it the culture? And how did you build that in an environment that's just really challenging at times? Yeah.
8: Yeah, it is a challenging environment. The last 10 years have not been that easy. But when I came to Unilever, I had the added uh, challenge that I was the first CEO coming in from the outside and having worked for some perceived competitors, that probably wasn't easy. So I understood that the onus of being respected was on me. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the company and and what made this company a great company before making the changes that we definitely had to make. Uh, The company was under pressure, Uh, top and bottom line were going down. Uh, over several years, and frankly, uh, it was in desperate need to grow again and, and become more profitable, more long term focused. So, I, I took a page out of the book of Jim Collins, From Good to Great, where uh, one thing that I've always stuck to me was when he said, Nurture the core. Before you stimulate progress and understanding what was the core of the company and the values. And interestingly, um, when we did an exercise with our management team, who all was convinced that we had the values, we never really had codified them and and written them down. It used to be, but not anymore. And, and uh, people had forgotten about that. So we went back to um, Port Sunlight, literally to the house where Lord Lever was born. We went back to these core values of the company that I talked about and and tried to make that come alive again in our company. And out of these core values, this was a man that um, wanted to make um, hygiene commonplace in Victorian Britain in that time where one out of two babies didn't make it past year one. That's why he invented the bar soap. That's why he even called it Life Boy. You know, this was a man that felt very strongly that he needed to lighten housewives' loads. And he was a very progressive man. When he went to the House of Lords, he took the name of his wife. You know, he paid women during World War One when the men went to war. He introduced pensions in the UK when he was in the House of Lords. This man was ahead of his time and sometimes, uh, you know, not appreciated by his contemporaries who might have had other objectives. So we put these values back in and out of these values came also the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which basically has as overall objective to make sustainable living commonplace. We translated that into decoupling growth from environmental impact, increasing overall social impact. We put targets behind that. We made it very transparent, uh, which is one of the conditions to create the trust that is often missing. And, um, and it was not a day too soon, I think, looking back 10 years. Uh, the need for that in society is even more so now than ever benefit from the need in society, sadly enough, in addressing some of these issues of planetary boundaries or taking care of multiple stakeholders or more inclusive business models and a millennial generation that has come up being a little bit more purpose driven. And I think these two made it that we became very quickly employer brands okay. in most of the countries that we operated and and an um, attraction, obviously, for young people applying. And it has served as well, because at the end of the day, it's that human capital that makes the difference.
3: Yeah. What a wonderful story about the courageous founder. Um, another yeah. question about values. I want to dig a little deeper there because uh, yeah. we're in touch with one big automotive manufacturer and when we when we go in, um, we see the values oftentimes stuck for some reason close to the bathrooms oftentimes. And now they <laughs> want to revamp them. They came up with a whole initiative about creating five values, but the entire team, um, the organization doesn't believe in the management team anymore. They say, well, these are on paper, but when I go into the board meeting, I don't see them, see them operated there.
8: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, the leadership team operates in a different way. So uh, the, the whole value uh-huh. system breaks down, the culture breaks down, and trust erodes Absolutely. even further. So how were you able to Absolutely. make those values actually stick your team with the entire Well, as
8: they say, and, and your point is a, is not an, uh, a one example. You mentioned a specific industry, but I think you'll find that in many industries and in many companies, and as people say, the fish starts rotting at the head. Uh, you know, when I was running the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, which has 200 of the most forward-thinking companies in there and capably led by uh, Peter Bucker right now, I only had the conversations with the CEOs. We disinvited invited about 100 companies and invited the, the better ones in, and you could see if the CEO cared about fighting corruption or human rights in the value chain. If a CEO would take responsibility among, uh, you know, for his total footprint in society and not only his own operations, if a CEO was just looking at the short term shareholder or was looking at the broader interest of the multiple stakeholders, it didn't take much to find it out. And if you wouldn't find it out in that conversation, the results of a company like that, how increasingly the feedback around it that you now get would have uh, would have driven you to the same conclusion. So it's absolutely key that you spend a lot of time with your management team. When when I joined Unilever, I was fortunate enough to know Bill George, and I was enamored with his book uh, True North. So I invited Bill to come into our company and help with the training of our employees. I had to replace a lot of people when I came, but when my team was in place, we. Said, that, you know, to be a good leader, first and foremost, you have to be a good human being and for that you have to understand yourself. So the first year we spent on purpose and, and uh, in our Unilever Leadership Development Program for people to just understand themselves, their crucibles, what made them take, what was important to them, what was their purpose in life. Some even left the company as a result of that. The second year we used that and say, well now that you know your purpose, how do you use that to influence others? And then only the third year we started to look at that for results. And we did that in a in In a rollout, a sequential rollout to about 500 people, the 500 most senior people in the company. And that was a a game changer because it it brought us all on the same page. It it made the company more human. It put the focus on the interest of others, multi-generational, and driving these values that ultimately give the results. And in our case, it has been 10 years of industry outperforming top and bottom line in a 300% shareholder return. So never did we have to compromise the. This multi-stakeholder model on um, ultimately also providing a benefit to the shareholders but uh, it is a result of what we did it's not an objective of us doing
3: so when when I hear that you subordinated your profits your margins to the purpose which is a fundamental shift in thinking of how we run organizations in, in today's world would you can, can you explore on that?
8: Yeah, I wouldn't think uh, that it has been a shift in my thinking. It's a shift perhaps in some people's thinking, but um, and it isn't just uh, the Friedman uh, dogma that has confused us. It's also the enormous amount of money that is out there chasing returns have made us increasingly short term. Um, also, at a political level, uh, you find that you find equally at a, at a company level. And uh, unfortunately, the mantra might have been for many people a personal greed uh, above the uh, the interest of the common good, but now we have so many challenges and uh, planetary boundaries like climate change or like, um, you know, the uh, lack of uh, resources to continue our growth pattern the way we're doing it, uh, or an economy that seems to function for a few people but not for too many people, that these challenges also affect businesses. You know, business cannot succeed in societies that fail and nor do I believe that frankly that businesses can be bystanders in a system that gives them space and reason to operate in the first place so business needs to become an active part of society and increasingly you see around you that businesses that are behaving irresponsibly you know, are actually ultimately paying the price for that themselves as well. If you believe in a long term business model, you automatically lead you to a more socially and, and, and environmentally responsible business model. In the US alone, if I may take some statistics, when I was born, the average lifetime of a company was about 65 years. That has dropped down to 17 years. The number of publicly traded companies in the last 30 years has halved. So we're running these companies into the ground, and that's not a good thing. So we have to bring back the real reason why these companies are there, and ultimately that is hopefully not only for the shareholders but to make a positive impact on society. And I would argue if that positive impact isn't there, these companies don't have a reason for being. And frankly, the companies that understand that and take human and social and environmental capital into account uh, are increasingly doing better as well in their own long-term performance.
3: Wonderful. I would like to touch on the Business Roundtable announcement, a group of composed of the Americans' leading CEOs, uh, which have just stated a couple of months ago that companies aren't just responsible to shareholders, but to multiple stakeholders, including their employees, partners, and their communities. This is a profound statement, which essentially puts Friedman's school of thought that business's main responsibility is to their shareholders to rest. What is your take on this announcement and what do you think is a fundamental change on the ground that companies must make to turn this into a reality?
8: Well, overall, I'm in the camp, obviously, that uh, looks at this announcement as positive. It is actually where the... uh Roundtable was well before the whole Friedman dogma became a a sort of a guiding rod for many of these companies, unfortunately, and and frankly, not to the benefit of uh, society ultimately, as we have seen. Um, And and this statement uh, has created the right discussions again in the U.S. where they need to be, and I'm happy about that. Uh, The underlying driver of an increasingly shorter term focused financial market uh, needs to be addressed, otherwise the uh, CEOs will not have the space to deal with the demands of the multiple stakeholders, because you cannot do that with this myoptic focus on quarterly profit. So we do need to provide some other incentives around there to move some of these boundaries to get to the right behavior, but overall it's positive. And the reason for that actually is the pressure from society as well. It's now overwhelmingly clear that companies that are having a more diverse workforce, be it gender or racial diversity, uh, perform better, and the data are overwhelming. Uh, Companies that uh, internalize the uh, climate uh, issues and and reduce carbon uh, are now performing better than others, not surprisingly. And we've seen them uh, do better and and be better prepared for the future, companies that take responsibility of the total value chain in terms of slave labor or child labor or human rights abuses and actively stamp them out. they tend to have a more robust value chain and and so forth and so forth so focusing on these multiple stakeholders is is obviously the answer if you want to be around long term. There is an organizational structure in the U.S. which is called the Benefit Corporation which I believe is now in 32 states in the U.S. and over 3,000 companies have signed up to that in 64 countries and Unilever has been very fortunate to have companies like Sundial or 7th Generation or Ben & Jerry's be part of the um, B Corp movement and they obviously go further already. They really put the uh, shareholders as as an outcome and and not as an objective. Uh, The BRT statement still has them on the same line. So I think there's a little bit more to do to move companies also in the U.S. from what you might call now the corporate social responsibility states to uh, responsible social corporations. So just move CSR to RSC, and it's a big difference. And uh, in the U.K., we started a a movement which which is called Blueprint for Better Business where we really have uh, a few principles, uh, what it takes for a company to put purpose back in the center and move your business model to the long term, what it means to be a good corporate citizen or a guardian for future generations. So coming to this statement that you now have uh, from these companies, these 181 companies, now we need to put the meat around the bone and I think a lot of people will be looking at the actions. Uh, not at the words. And I've written to those companies and asked them, are you signing up for the one and a half degrees global warming and be net zero in carbon emission by 2050? That's the only way we can save humanity uh, and and obviously a lot of other species. Are you willing to sign up to the... Rocky framework of human rights or the 10 principles that the UN Global Compact has laid out. And it's only in those concrete actions that you can now do at scale to move, hopefully, for it to a more sustainable and equitable society for all that we can judge if these statements that have been made are, uh, are successful.
3: Yeah, um, that's, that's wonderful. When we work with organizations, there, there it seems like there's a point where we're, there are just two. Beasts in our heart, I would say. Uh, when I speak with leaders, oftentimes they say, or most of them actually say, "Yes, we want to be more sustainable. Yes, we want to be more purpose-driven. Yes, we want to have an engaged workforce. I care about people, and it's it's very true. But then push comes to shove, and quarterly results have to be met, and it turns out that some, suddenly there is another agenda driving driving the leader. So, what shift needs to happen in leaders to avoid that that we are actually sticking well, to our values in those critical situations? Yeah. And, and
8: Yeah, no, there are definitely, uh, if you meet many leaders, nobody wants more unemployment or air pollution or people going to bed hungry. Or, or people sleeping in the streets, as, uh, as is the case increasingly in your country as well. Uh, 80 million Americans living $500 away from the poverty line is not a country that should be proud of its records. You know, you just need a medical disaster or your car breaking down and you're one of the street people in San Francisco or Seattle. So it's very serious. So I think when CEOs say, yeah, we don't want that and yet go back in their daily behavior to the uh, quarterly red race of uh, Minoptic folk Focus on, on the short term, you really have to ask yourself if they care enough. You know, I I think we have everything in our means to address most of these issues. We also know that actually, longer term, it's better for your company. It's increasingly more profitable to run your company with green energy or with sustainable sourcing or by better treating your people. Uh, the evidence is now overwhelming. So when CEOs say, I cannot handle that, um, I really ask the question, do you really care? Uh, and uh, we have an issue now of human and willpower and leadership more than we have an issue of lack of technology or, or not knowing how we need to get to, uh, to some of these uh, solutions, yeah. especially at a time when the political environment is difficult, when you see more polarization there, populism, countries going back to their own territories. It really is time for the CEOs to step up to some extent the, and help actually, by doing so, help de-risk the political process. We saw that in Charlottesville. We saw that in the U.S. with the LGBT community. To some extent, we see that in um, in the uh, issues about uh, the uh, the right to bear arms. Um, but now we have to step it up on these more profound issues of morality and how we run businesses and how to make it more inclusive. And if we don't do that, we're eroding the fabric of society and we're eroding democracy, which I think is very dangerous if we want humanity to to be successful for generations to come. So. If CEOs don't get it, I think nowadays you see increasingly that their employees get it. It's amazing that you have walkouts of major companies. You know, the wonderful announcement of Amazon to be carbon neutral by 2040, 10 years ahead of uh, what is needed in 2050, if you want to, the one and a half degrees, uh, their employees would have walked out if Jeff Bezos wouldn't have made that announcement. We applaud the announcement, but it came from pressure from employees. Just as employees are saying, don't deliver mattresses to the border control people, when you separate uh, refugees' parents from their children, just as employees are saying, I don't want to work for your company if you don't support the Me Too movement. So the pressure that is coming in from society now, I think, is making a lot of CEOs think. Now the good thing is that the CEOs that take a more public stand, that actually embrace that, it's also appreciated by society. And Edelman survey pointed out it's about 75% of the societies appreciate employees, uh, sorry, CEOs having a clear position on these Things and obviously taking action. But increasingly, the economics are going to drive this. The financial market is getting involved, and In the financial market, you see major movements now on decarbonization, uh, ENG investment. You look at the questions that are being asked at shareholder meetings now skewed at this moment towards climate change which is our most existential threat and burning issue but increasingly also to other issues because we just know that it makes good economic sense and we know that we need to do that to bend again our, our capitalist system if you want to into the right direction just as Franklin Roosevelt did during the new deal when the US went into some of its most prosperous period after it had adjusted from some of the abuses of the system then we're at that point where we need to do that again and It can only happen if business uh, behaves responsibly and is part of that solution. Otherwise, they risk becoming dinosaurs themselves very quickly. It might be one reason why we see the average tenure of a CEO uh, in a Fortune 500 company now at less than four and a half years. So if you want to be around for the long term, you have to be a good corporate citizen, and that definition is rapidly changing.
3: Yes, when I hear you speak... um it really reminds me that leadership is really not about what we do, but who we are. It really starts with yeah. ourselves. Um, yeah. and so my question that comes up is, are we educating our leaders in a way that supports that? Is our business education geared to that? Or even further down the road, um, the way how we bring up leaders in, inside organizations and what would need to change there?
8: Well, it is clear that uh, we are all products from a certain uh, uh, way of educating, but you can't blame education alone because that education that we need to get happens throughout our lives. In the last five years, I had to learn and unlearn more than perhaps the previous 30 years, and that pace will continue. So it's a continuous process, but it is true that the original um, design of the MBA programs, if we start there, which I'm a product of myself, was very much in the narrow definition of GDP and optimization. Optimizing the return on financial capital. Very few schools have integrated, even today, in a sufficient way what it takes to optimize the return not only of financial capital but also social and environmental capital. If we do that, capitalism is perfect, but we need to do that on the three-legged stool and not just on the narrow definition. And that's the same problem in GDP. An oil spill in the, in, in the Gulf builds GDP. A war builds GDP, not peace. Um, you know, air pollution actually builds the GDP. Clean air doesn't. Quality of education is not in GDP. So increasingly, I think we're discovering that we need to have a different definition than just industrial output and producing more stuff. And our educational system is obviously where you need to start, but we cannot afford to wait that long. We have to, at the same time, work on the current leaders in the businesses to bring them to a higher level of consciousness. If we're only going to wait to the MBA programs, which obviously have to become more multidisciplinary, which have to build in social sciences which where you have to teach people uh, how to work in partnerships with governments and civil society many of the skills are, that are missing uh, right now uh, we cannot afford to wait to have that Uh, be the solution alone. We have to work at the same time as we work on the education, which is obviously rapidly changing as well for the different reasons. We also have to work on the current leaders that have the the honor to run these businesses, to bring them to a higher level of consciousness. And I've always said that the crisis that we're going through now, more than anything, is a moral crisis.
3: Yeah, I want to Pick up on that consciousness that you mentioned. As someone who wanted to become a priest, I believe I can ask you this question. What do you understand a conscious business to be? And what impact uh, could you see conscious business practices have on organizations and the importance of consciousness that you mentioned?
8: Oh, that's a long question. I'll try to see it, give it a short answer, but it's an important question. You know, it's a, a conscious business. It's probably a business that um, is uh, long term focused on the multiple stakeholders. Um, a business that uh, ultimately thinks of it uh, being a net co- positive contributor to society. I think we're already in many of the issues such as planetary boundaries and um, climate change, being again the major one that I want to point out, or income inequality. We're at a point now that being less bad is not good enough anymore. Companies have to move from, uh, you know, to a higher level of consciousness. And one of, that, these, one of the steps they have to take is to ensure that their business models actually have a, a positive footprint. And that many have not figured out yet. So companies that um, run for the longer term, that operate with a higher level of awareness of what is going on, self-awareness, awareness of purpose, that are proactive in building these needed relationships to drive not only financial change but also social and environmental change are the businesses that increasingly, you know, will be the ones that will succeed. And and you see already this, this bifurcation happening quite rapidly in every market that we look at between these more responsible or conscious businesses, as you call it, and the ones that refuse to play that broader responsibility.
3: So... As, as you know, you're a figurehead for more conscious and sustainable business practices. If you would give an advice for leaders who are looking to take their company on a similar path, what would you recommend them to start going at?
8: Well, there are many many others that have the same um, level of consciousness and many examples where leaders are doing it. We're not short of um, leaders, but first and foremost, we need to get that moral uh, level higher in ourselves, what is our purpose? Do we care? what is our compass uh, if you as a as a person don 't believe in that uh, you don 't believe in in climate change or you don 't believe in planetary boundaries and and all the other things you don 't believe in in equality, then you obviously uh, have to deal with your own challenges, so it starts with yourself and uh, your awareness should then uh, also translate into engagement. You know, we've created these islands of prosperity in the oceans of poverty, and all we do is building bigger walls around ourselves and, and not being able to engage with what the real issues are in society is obviously uh, and that's the first step you need to overcome. Then the second thing, once you have that higher moral compass, I think a lot of pieces will fall in place. There are a lot of trade organizations now. There's a lot of evidence, that uh, a lot of suggestions on how do you integrate purpose into your businesses, how do you build more sustainable business models, first of all, in your own business under your control, but then into your value chain. And then even further on, how do you... Uh, make it more transformative by working with uh, industry associations and they are good examples of that or how to be more of an advocate of things you believe in. It's hard work and it probably requires a little bit more than just running your company but it all depends in detail on how much you believe in, in being part of a solution or continuing to being part of a problem. So... Um, I think that's, that's where it comes. The second part, if you don't want to go into this moral journey and you think it's a little bit fluffy and, and not tangible and you don't believe in that, then I would just simply say that currently the uh, economics more and more are overwhelmingly in favor of moving to a more responsible business model. People that have moved to green energy in the U.S. have cheaper energy. Now the cost of solar has come down 65%. We haven't really opened coal mines. We have closed more coal mines under this administration this despite their efforts to not have that happen, than in any other period of time. Uh, and that's just on energy. There are three-quarters of the world now that, uh, uh, you know, uh, green energy is cheaper than coal, and that's a good thing. Uh, and the same thing uh, we find out in more diverse organizations, they perform better. The same thing we find out in organizations that look at sustainable sourcing, where it's increasingly uh, supply chains are being disrupted by climate change and, And other disruptions that we have, um, uh, internalizing that and and, uh, building that into your businesses and business strategies just makes enormous economic sense. In fact, many of the issues that have not been addressed and that we deal with now, the issues of food security or climate change or poverty, uh, actually result in costs to all of us that are higher than what we would need to spend to avoid these issues in the first place. And that is a very attractive proposition because it gets right away into the long-term viability and profitability of companies. So there's not only a moral reason we talked about, but there's also an increasingly stronger um, economic reason. We created a commission called Business and Sustainable Development Commission to just look at integrating the Sustainable Development uh, Goals that were signed by 193 countries in September 2015 at the UN, integrating those into the businesses and just looking at four areas, mobility, cities, health and well-being, and the energy sector. And, and we found an opportunity of $12 trillion and and 65 million job creations at a time that we needed most. So smart companies understand that. And even in your country, increasingly, you see them moving in the right direction for that reason.
3: Yeah, so there's a huge opportunity out there for organizations to step up and take the lead, it seems. Um,
8: Absolutely. I I think what is is happening now is that... Mm -hmm. No, I think I wanted to uh, build on that, what you're saying. I think most people are are well aware of uh, what needs to be done and the direction they're moving in is fine. But what we now need to focus on is the speed and scale. We're just not simply not moving fast enough
3: So just a a couple of minutes left, do you want to say a couple of words about your new foundation, Imagine, which is focused on sustainability issues and alleviating poverty, some of the most pressing pressing issues?
8: Well, it builds on what we were saying before. I think we're moving in the right direction. Many people are convinced that we have uh, an issue there uh, and that the political situation is difficult, that that's not where the help is coming from. So, we are um, looking really at how can we drive transformative change by working on the system. Any change that is currently happening in the system is linear, whilst what we need with the sense of urgency is an exponential change. So, uh, Imagine focuses on industry sectors like fashion or like tourism and travel or like food, uh, Identify some of the hero CEOs in the discussions we've had, make them e- make them even more hero and drive them to higher individual performances, make their companies better, and then create a collective, get 30% of the value chain in the room uh, at a CEO level and try to drive the tipping points. When 30% is in the room, we see that civil society wants to cooperate, governments want to put the right frameworks in place and work. We see other industries wanting to be part of these initiatives and moving more and more things to pre-competitive levels also is increasingly more profitable for the industry as a total. So we save humanity, we make it a more inclusive growth for generations to come, and we make these companies more successful and give them a license to operate, and that's where Imagine is focused on. And we're seeing tremendous results already in the areas that we're involved in. Main focus, climate change and inequality, and all around implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals.
3: Yeah, wonderful. So... Keep your eyes out for Imagine, uh, Paul's new organization. Thank you for doing what you do, Paul Polman, and thank you for being on the show.
8: Thank you for the opportunity, enjoyed it, and hope to see you soon again.
9: Hi, my name is Peter Matisse and I'm the founder of the Conscious Business Institute. I created the institute in 2005 because I saw that our world would be faced with fundamental changes and that our existing ways to conduct business were not designed to meet these challenges ahead of us. To succeed in the future, we don't need new processes or tools. We need a new consciousness, a new thinking for the way we conduct business. Our world is at a crossroads. Most of us can feel the impact in our daily lives. Go through the corridors of your organization and ask yourself, are your people managing a healthy workload or are they getting burnt out? Are they fulfilled and engaged? And are they feeling a sense of belonging? And does your company have a culture that's able to attract the best talent? As the former CEO of IBM, Lou Gerstner said, culture isn't just one aspect of the game, it is the game. At the Conscious Business Institute, we've created a measurable, proven, and truly scalable system for building more inspiring organizations. Our programs have helped companies from one to over a 100,000 people on five continents to improve the way they operate and perform. Whether you're looking for a systematic approach to improve your culture and leadership or need to solve a specific issue in your team, whether you want to reach every employee in your organization or are just looking for powerful one-on-one coaching, get in touch with us at consciousbusinessinstitute.com to understand how we can support you. Let us help you turn your company into a poster child organization, a place where people feel they belong, where they're willing to give their best and together create amazing things. Let's come together to create a better way to work and live.
1: Welcome back to the Convergence on Voice America. Our program is Conscious Business for a Flourishing World, and we're sharing interviews with prominent thought leaders on this topic. So I'm here with Peter Matisse, founder of the Conscious Business Institute, one of the hosts of this special Voice America program. So Peter, you had an opportunity to interview at length Ronaldo Brutoco. So Peter, introduce Ronaldo and give us a bit of an introduction about this interview, and then we can go right over to it. Yes, I had the opportunity for a rich discussion with Ronaldo Brutocco. Ronaldo is one of these individuals I
3: always revert back to when I try to understand what's happening in the world. Whether I want to understand the financial markets, the political landscape, or climate change, he's one of the few individuals I've met who got both the knowledge and the strategic brain to explain what's really happening. Ronaldo has founded
9: several companies and served on the board of New York Stock
3: Exchange companies for more than 20 years. He founded the World Business Academy in 1987 and therefore has been helping transform business for over 30 years now. In our discussion, Rinaldo will speak about the impact of the Business Roundtable announcement from July this year, where this powerful group of over 170 corporate leaders broke with the Friedman paradigm that businesses' main responsibility is to satisfy shareholder return. We discuss climate change issues and what today's leaders can do to create more flourishing businesses.
1: Great, Peter. That sounds like a great interview. So, let's go over right now to this discussion between Peter Matisse and Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, wonderful to have
3: you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time today.
10: Oh, Peter, no, it's wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, I'm a big fan of your work, as you know, so it's great to be on the show.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. I just want to dive right in. You are one of the first people in the conscious business world. As a founder of the World Business Academy, you've been involved in shifting the consciousness of business leaders for more than 30 years now, I believe. So I just want to start from the get-go here. What, in your eyes, is a conscious business, and what are the impacts uh, that we can expect to see when we create more conscious businesses, both on the company itself and on society?
10: Yeah, I think the the first question, uh, and this is a little bit longer answer than you might get. It's not a, a soundbite. It's really a thoughtful response. Businesses need to see themselves as derivative from and aligned with the institutions, in this case the societies that, they get, that give rise to them. In other words, a business needs to see itself in, in the context of the community from which it arose. So if that bu- community is the United States of America, it needs to see itself as arising from that community. If the community is California, mm-hmm. seeing itself arising from that community, and to recognize that the community gets larger as the business expands till eventually it's global. Mm-hmm. If it keeps expanding. Not just business. It, 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 and the reason that's so important, Peter, is because people have perpetrated a, one of the great lies, which is business and society are separate. Therefore, what goes on in business has nothing to do with society and vice versa. So you can have a perfectly functioning, great economy, even if the society is a mess, and vice versa. And yeah. that's not true. And, and you see that theory playing mm-hmm. out right now in the present day, where a lot of people on Wall Street are whistling past the graveyard, saying it doesn't matter how messed up the politics in America are. We'll still keep, keep making money. Share prices will still keep going up. And what I always like to say to people to bring this home vividly is if you think you can do business in any environment, try selling anything in Syria. Short of bombs and weapons, there's nothing else you can sell there. Okay? So you've got to recognize you're part of this bigger social whole, And if you see yourself that way, then you're going to be more conscious about the role you play in it. Now, to the second part of your question, what would happen if uh, leaders created these conscious businesses is I believe that business individually and collectively, will boom. And we've put a lot of time and energy into proving that at the Academy. So it's no longer just my theory. It's something I can point to with numbers and say, see, that proves it. Look what Just Capital did. We, there's no question. Those values are actually what drives every single stakeholder to a higher return.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for for diving deeper. here. You're speaking about really connection, not being independent and just operating as a as an independent entity, but being connected to the environment, connected to the society that we that we're working in. So this brings us right to the Business Roundtable announcement. For those of you who are not familiar with the Business Roundtable, it's a group composed of America's leading CEOs, which a few months ago stated publicly that companies aren't just responsible to shareholders, but to multiple stakeholders, employees, partners, their communities, the environment, et cetera. A profound statement which essentially puts Friedman's school of thought that businesses' main responsibility is to their shareholders to rest. So the question to you, Ronaldo: why has the Business Roundtable come to this conclusion at this time? And what do you think will be the impact that we can see on businesses and society as a result of this?
10: Yeah, well, first of all, uh, this really started with... with, with (laughs) A great deal of strum and drong back in 1970 when Milton Friedman basically said, you know, the business of business is business, if you will, uh, and the only way to conduct business appropriately, the only goal of business is share owner return. And so we lived with that false belief from the 70s. Now, the academy, which I formed in 86, and the business I ran and the nonprofits I ran before that in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, always had as its position precisely where the Business Roundtable has now come up. You know that, Peter. You've been reading my stuff for 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so what we've said all along was that is bad for the shareowners. So if you really really care about your shareowners long-term, you cannot afford to take such a narrow view that the pursuit of profits for shareholder return, by the way, usually on a quarterly-quarter basis, which is even more dangerous, is the only duty because if you have that as your only pursuit... I can assure you over time you will fail. I don't care how big you are. That's if you're GE, right? That's a good current example. You will fail because the pursuit of profit for profit's sake is the same ideology as a cancer cell, growth for growth's sake. It doesn't work. It kills the host organism. And that's why so much damage has been done on the planet to the biosphere by the host organism, to the host organism, the biosphere, by business. And that's what's going to change. So when you see yourself as in service to stakeholders, which is what I'm basically articulating, the question is not how can I make it, make it fast and give it to the shareholders. It's what's the role I need to play in society so that this company prospers in all ways, trusting that if my company prospers in all ways, it'll be here 10, 20, 50 years from today and it'll still be making money for the shareholders. And so to me, it's really enlightened self-interest.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a study by IBM which looks at, I think, 850 top CEOs around the world to create the ideal workplace. And when you look at that study, they all come up with um, authentic, purpose-driven, people can be themselves, all those kind of things that we want to see in organizations. And still, it's not happening. So I I would imagine that looking at the business roundtable announcement, there are a good number of people who don't trust that this announcement will actually change the way businesses are run on a day-to-day basis. So why why can we trust this roundtable announcement? And on the flip side, why might we not trust it?
10: Okay, first of all, before we have to trust it, you know that old adage: you can make it, you, you can fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. If the business roundtable articulates the standard that they have, which is that they will serve all stakeholders equally, including employees, customers, vendors, stake, share owners, of course, and the communities in which they operate. That's what we've always said is the best way to run any business and every business. Now, if you mm-hmm. have come to realize that that is the, quote, current wisdom you need to articulate, whether you believe it or not, the very fact you articulate it creates that standard. So that's number one. So even if the 182 CEOs that signed that business roundtable statement, even if they didn't believe it when they signed it, the truth is they felt forced to have to sign it because that is the way you have to articulate the role of business. Now, once you start articulating that as business's role, you can begin to design criteria by which that will be evaluated. Just capital, as you know already looks at the 1,000 largest companies in America, public companies. Mm-hmm. And we will be giving a routine updated scorecard on how companies are doing against those stakeholder interests. And we believe that scorecard will help keep the CEOs who signed this statement in touch with what the legitimate expectations of the public are. So I do believe it's most of them probably haven't sworn it in blood, but they know they've got to say it, so they're going to agree with it. A chunk of them do agree with it and really want to implement it and know that it's accurate. And I mean some big companies, Intel's like that. I could name some others. And then there's another Mm -hmm. category of CEOs who signed it reluctantly that you're referring to, who may drag their feet, who will give it lip service, greenwashing, whatever. At the end of the day, they will come along too. or guess what, they will be replaced by someone who does. Because society has made this decision and business must follow And That's why it ties to my first comment. If you forget that you're part of yeah. the society from which you arose, you're toast, ultimately, no matter how yeah. much power yeah. you have in the aggregated market capital.
3: Yeah, you'll be washed out at some point in time, which we see uh, with, with many transitions in our world. You, you spoke about Just Capital, which is an independent organization, which is great that they're looking putting these scorecards together. Are you aware that the Business Roundtable is working on their own scorecards to measure and, and uh, put this in place in their organization?
10: Yeah, I've been told that, and, and um, we've had some internal conversations. Martin Whitaker, who's the CEO of Just Capital, and uh, and I guess, I should, I, full disclosure, so I'm one of the co-founders with Paul Tudor Jones and Deepak Chopra of Just Capital. So and, uh, mm-hmm. in, in in doing that particular activity for the last five-plus years, five-and-a-half years, I've become very um, committed to it and really see the world through the Just Capital lens because of uh, the fact that we're actualizing on these ratings. We were told, and Martin, and I've discussed it as recently as last week, uh, what the business roundtable would like to do to hold themselves more accountable, and I think it's great. I really welcome that. I think it's a great step forward for the roundtable, and I think we should do it too, as an independent force. And my suspicion mm-hmm. is in the in the crucible of public opinion, our ranking of that of their success at achieving that will probably matter more to the public than their own self-assessment. Yeah. And I
3: yeah, there needs to be an independent assessment here. Um, yeah. Just I want to make it a little bit more practical for those people who run their own organizations that are listening here, or, which might just be a manager in an organization. So if, if you're working inside an organization, you want to create a more balanced approach between financial returns and making a positive impact in society, what's uh, a piece or a couple of pieces of advice you would give to those individuals? What, what do they need to change to get there?
10: Oh, well, gosh. I mean look, there's a saying we have in the academy Peter. <laughs> the only thing you can ever change is yourself. Right? <laughs> so you know, it's it, what you, I'm getting it, to here. Yeah. yeah. So basically, um I I've I've done guest lecturing at some of the best business schools in the world for, you know, thirty years now and and um the number one tool, people always say, Well, how did you get so successful as an entrepreneur? How'd you do this? How'd you do that? And I said, Well, it starts with get to know yourself. Get to know the space that Still, a quiet voice within. Uh, Right Mm -hmm. now, people call it meditation. Uh, John Cabot zinn for example, has been a friend of mine for, gosh, 25 years. Uh, And when John Mm -hmm. first started writing about mindfulness, um, there were very few of us who got instantly that he was right because he was articulating what we were doing, and he gave us a language to express it. So whether you call it a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice or just being mindful, uh, I think it's all the same thing. We're saying if you get still at some part of every day, and the more often the better, that still place you go to where you let the mind chatter go away, that what we call the monkey mind can just take care of itself, and you go to that deeper level of awareness about what you're really connected to, I believe that you are going to reach an internal dimension, which will give you the ability to see what you do every day on the job in a new light. So what you need to change is you need to make sure you change yourself first. No one is going to preach somebody into good business strategies. But we can lead them to good business strategies by coming at it from a place of calm, centered internal awareness, and then doing our homework. And and this is the part I like to stress the most, Peter. I would love it if people believed, well, I I mean, it would be a joke if people believed that everything I did in my life was just sheer luck. Now I've had plenty of luck, and, and Lord knows luck has a great role to play in everybody's success. But at the end of the day, I read a lot, and I write a lot, mm-hmm. and I talk to people a lot, and I'm I'm constantly gathering information. So I would say the number one thing we must do if we want to be successful, particularly if we are re-strategizing an existing business, not doing one from scratch, but Basically, rebuilding the ship while at sea. Think of that metaphor, rebuilding the ship while at sea. If we're doing that, not only do we have to be centered ourselves, but we have to bring to it a level of awareness of what other people have said that have come before us and what have they already figured out, because you can't figure it out on your own. You've got to be willing to learn, and learn a lot, and fairly fast, by the way. Uh, the, the, The learning curve time has gone down radically over the last hundred years. It used to be you could apprentice to being a candle maker, and you could do it for seven years until you got really good at candle making, or five years, or whatever. Nobody's got mm-hmm. five years for you to be an apprentice anymore. You, you, you got five yeah. minutes, and, the, and, and, and they shoot the pistol off, and you better get running. So you have to be mm-hmm. able to do this while you are still in functioning in the work world. So the second thing, get the education. Learn. And education never stops. There's going to be something else I need to know tomorrow. I don't know today, and I've got to go find it. And as long as you have that curiosity, it will help you then assess how best to deploy the collective wisdom you've learned to your individual unique experience. What do I mean by that? Books are written generically. You're, you write a book to tell a story about a, a broad theme or whatever. In order to apply everything you learn to your individual business requires a lot of decision-making, a lot of filtering. Mm-hmm. and a lot of thoughtfulness. And that is a key ingredient of bringing the information home to your organization. Last but not least, I, uh, I believe there's a great motto in the, in, in, in the Marines, never leave, a, never leave another guy on the battlefield. In other words, you've got to bring everybody along with you. Um, if, if somebody goes into an organization and tries to turn it upside down and doesn't bring their fellows along with them, and I mean fellows generically, men and women, if they don't bring them along... It's, it's, a, it's a task where you'll get burned out and move somewhere else, or they'll get tired of seeing you show up. So you, you, you can't do this with ego. You've got to do this from a how can I serve. And sometimes the, way, the best way to serve is to go slower than you'd like, but as fast as you have to go. At the same time, not going so slow that you, you default on your objective. So those would be the... Statistics. Yeah, so those
3: are fundamentally... Yeah, thank you, Ronald. Those are fundamentally different values. You spoke about servant leadership. You spoke about self, self-leadership self awareness. You spoke about genuinely connecting and caring about other people, which are the tenants of, of, of a well-run business, but they're oftentimes fundamentally different than what we see out there. I'd be curious, um, maybe you can share with our listeners... What what are your own practices? What got you into meditation? How how has it really helped you? Because you run a lot of energy, and I would imagine that helps you quite a bit at times. And what do you read to keep up to date? Uh, because there's so much information out there. What 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 help people? Can you give them some recommendations?
10: Yeah, well, I mean, for me, because I'm I'm in business and I'm constantly you know pushing. The, 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 the edge between business and society. So I'm always looking at that interface. Mm-hmm. So for me, base level reading is every day, the Financial Times of London is my uh, browser. It's That's like my default screen, right? When I turn my computer on, the first thing I see is Financial Times of London. And I, and I typically go after the U.S. edition because I only do the international if I want to. Like right now, I'm doing more on the international because I'm reading more about Brexit from the British perspective. But you can get plenty of Brexit information from the U.S. version of, of Financial Times. And if you put it on your screen, uh, you'll end up seeing a lot every day, even if you're just whipping through it. Secondly, I try to read uh, with incredibly uh, religiously I mean, I, I, the New York Times every day. Uh, and I have a digested service, which makes it easier. But I, any day I haven't read the New York Times, I don't throw it away. So you should take a look at And And you've seen my office, Peter. There's a whole bunch of old ones here. And I tell my friends, you know how far behind I am, If you can see the oldest date of the New York Times. I've read. Number three, yeah. uh, I, think, I think that the economist, and I don't agree with every editorial position of the economist, frankly, but I certainly agree with the quality and the breadth of the investigation and the reporting and the articles in there. And if you want to know, if you want a picture of what the business world is thinking as it's seeing itself in a reflective lens, it's The Economist. Uh, and so I try not to miss that. Another tool I try not yeah. to miss is uh, This Week magazine. I find that it's an extraordinarily concise, short-form way to get a lot of information. Now, for 40 years, I used to also read the Wall Street Journal every day, particularly because they were so convenient with their two columns on the left with one paragraph to each story. Um, I, unfortunately, I, I finally quit my subscription about three years ago or so. The quality of the journal went down dramatically, as you know, under Murdoch. Um, the, the, the two columns became one, and they started doing, you know, happy face talk stories on the main page. Now, the number of errors in the publication has gone up, and frankly, even though the reporting used to be excellent and the editorial page was pretty bad, and now the reporting is okay and the editorial page is still pretty bad. So I don't put the energy in there. Now, the other things I do is I'm online a lot for information. First of all, it's, it's, it's more timely, it's up-to-date, etc. So I, there are a number of services, online services, I subscribe to that I regularly go to every day, to get a, a, a full smattering of business information, political information, social information, trend information. So when you put all that together with what hits your in-basket as normal email, it's really hard to have a life. <laughs> yes. But you have, to, you have to balance it. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I find that I, I will often get caught behind like Wednesday, I can't wait for Saturday so I can put three or four hours of catch-up reading in. So don't make yourself wrong if you can't read it all every day. But try not to let it go too much before you touch base with your key sources. And some of them, like I would say Financial Times and and the New York Times, you really want to do every day. And The Economist, is just no excuse for not reading it because you can get through it quick enough. And it's a whole week of, you know, the world in your hand. Last but not least, uh, I used to read a lot more books than I do currently. I wish I could read more, uh, and I'm just having a hard time uh, putting that into the equation. But I'm I'm still working on it, and I still read probably as much as the average person, but I'm not doing the kind of scholarly reading I used to do that I used to love because just time doesn't permit.
3: Yeah, I always admired you because your days seem to be longer than mine. <laughs> so what about your <laughs> contemplative practices? When you talk about knowing yourself and self-awareness, what do you uh, do in that, those areas?
10: Well, I mean, for me, it's meditation. So um, I start every day with a little uh, a very easy to do uh, stretching, set of stretching exercises. People call it yoga. I call it stretching exercises. A yoga sounds like a pedigree I haven't earned yet. But uh, I do these stretching exercises, and I do meditation in conjunction with it. So either right before I do all my stretches or typically right after, I I take that time to do a quiet, introspective moment, and and it's my favorite time of the day, and it's the one time a day I give myself permission to just do that for me, which is to get out of the way. Uh, And then I try frequently during the day, um, particularly when I'm going really fast, if I get a chance, even if it's... I call it meditation on the run. Even if it's just 30 seconds or a minute where I've got just a minute between things I've got to do, if I've got a whole minute, I go, whoa, okay, let's we'll just stop and go inside. And it's amazing how much time you've been a really, see. Yeah,
3: We recently talked to a friend who's turned monk for 12 years, and he says, start with one minute. If you can't do one minute, we have another problem, but start with one minute and just be focused. And if something we can't do, then we need to talk about different things. I want to bring it back to business, um, especially for around employee engagement, because it's such a big topic these days. I recently browsed through studies again from Gallup, and since years, the average hasn't really changed at all, despite all the... Uh, um, all the in, incentives to improve employee engagement. Burnout is up, and more than 40% of all diseases are now caused by workplace stress. What do you attribute these issues to? Is it leadership or, um, again, back to the business roundtable, um, how will this impact this, this pervasive, pervasive issue that Jeffrey Pfeffer from the Stanford Business School said, like, like, jobs are killing us in his new book? How can this change uh, through this announcement?
10: Yeah, okay, so uh, through which announcer, the business roundtable one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so the, the uh, I'll give you a short answer to that that I want to answer it at a deeper level. The short answer is when you look at all of your stakeholders, by definition, you're going to be more balanced, period, full stop. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at the impact you're having on your employees, and it matters to you as much as how much money you're putting at the bottom line, uh, you're going to have a whole new way to, as an organizing principle. So in the academy 15 years ago or so, we said, you know, this, this triple bottom line, um, people, planet, profits, is not a good enough explanation. You need a quadruple bottom line, people, planet, profits, and purpose. Because mm-hmm. if, if, particularly the younger people, the millennials, they don't come to work just for money. The majority are coming to work. Obviously, they have to have money. But they're coming because they're passionate and they have a purpose. If you don't give people of them, a yeah. purpose mm-hmm. to care, yeah, if you don't give a purpose to care, mm-hmm. then... You're not going to get the best of the cream of the crop, and guess what? You're not going to be the best organization, and therefore you won't be the best competitor. So it's really, again, light self-interest. But I want to tell you at the deeper level, I just published an article five days ago, which any, any listener wants, they can get a copy. Just go to our website, everything we do for free for the public, uh, worldbusiness.org, and um, just Google, insert in the search bar, business warrior monk. So mm-hmm. business warrior monk is a series of core principles, which I wrote because it helps somebody understand what I've tried to do with my life and what I've learned that really works. And it's based in part on a sentence that I heard many years ago by Dag Hammarskjöld, the U.N. Secretary General. And here's the quote. In our era, the road to holiness necessarily passes through the world of action. I took that to heart a long, long time ago. And And what I tried to do in the Business Warrior Monk is to answer the question you 're asking at a much deeper level, and the level i 'm answering at it, what are the core principles which we need to do? so i 'm going to just read the, the headline i 'm not going to read you the whole thing. Orientation to spirit. We are not humans having a spiritual experience, rather, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Amazing how that changes your perspective. Uh, number two, clarity of purpose. It's everything. It's the perennial philosophy, right? It's what Aldous Huxley wrote about. Number two, clarity of purpose. If we accept the conclusion that the universe is benign, then the transcendental question that will define our life's work is, how can I serve? See, that's business and service to community. Number three, embracing critical qualities. Once we understand our life's purpose, we must commit heart and soul to fulfilling it by acting with impeccable discipline, humility, and inspiration. And the fourth one, Redefining success. If we act in accordance with the above principles, then we're inevitably led to supreme success, including having the appropriate amount of money that will follow. Notice I said the appropriate amount of money. Mm-hmm. Mother Teresa had the appropriate amount of money and built uh, over 600 physical buildings around the planet to house orphans and, and uh, dying patients and did it without accumulating a nickel to her own name. But she had all the money she needed, as long as she needed it.
3: Yeah, let's talk about one of the big things, climate change and businesses' role in it. Um, Climate change is enormously complex. There are so much dispute and new discoveries on what are the biggest contributors to climate change. I recently read a U.S. study that states that only 100 big businesses cause 71% of all CO2 emissions. Others point the fingers to emerging nations, including China and India, for example. And another study shows that the U.S. military pollutes more than 140 countries combined. If you were to do three things to tackle the climate crisis, where would you begin?
10: First of all, I'd begin with methane, not CO2, because uh, the methane crisis is much worse than CO2. So um, mm-hmm. would, what we didn't know, we, I did a study that took 12 years. and I just, That's what I published on June 6th, this uh, climate mobilization paper. Uh, we did a white paper at the Academy on how methane emerging from the seabed as well as from permafrost, but even way more from the ocean floor, is escaping now at such a rate that um, it dwarfs the impact of CO2. So if we went to zero, to zero CO2 emissions tomorrow morning, it's too late because the planet's already so hot from the methane emis- uh, emergence and the, and the CO2 that's already there that the methane will continue to be released in an accelerating closed-loop fashion, okay? So methane is coming mm-hmm. up out of the ocean, the more that comes up, the more that will come up, and that can't be stopped through normal means. The CO2 is just merely like throwing kerosene on a bonfire. The bonfire is the methane. Now, having said that, and by the way, in the CO2 world, there is now a really good solution called direct air capture. So we now know that yeah. with, uh, at $100 a ton, You could take and suck the CO2 out of the air, literally, and turn it back into carbon. And you could take that carbon. Mm -hmm. I know a guy right now is making bracelets out of it. So you can wear a bracelet on your arm that you pay for that's from carbon that's been sucked from the air. It's a pretty good idea. Uh, There's a whole bunch of other products I'd like to see made from it because it could replace fossil fuels as as the feedstock for plastics. So, and mm-hmm. the nice thing about it, using it carbon di- carbon dioxide that's reduced to carbon as a feedstock is once you use it in plastic, it never goes back into the air again. So it's frozen forever, back in a solid form. So if you think about it, that's taking a lump of coal, which was solid, burning it turns it into a gas. The gas has got the CO two. You suck the CO two out of the air, and you put the air back into a solid form as carbon, and then that carbon is bonded to create some object that's useful, even if it's just insulation. Mm-hmm. That approach costs $100 a ton and will drop in time in price. But now that we know what the cost is, we should be charging every fossil fuel company probably $105 a ton to recapture their CO2. That should be the carbon tax because that's the cost of taking Mm -hmm. their garbage back out of the air. And what I like to say about CO2 is, hey, if you were to run a restaurant in my town and you threw your garbage (coughs) on the sidewalk and you didn't pay to haul it away, they'd put you out of business in about a week. Why do we permit the fossil fuel companies to put their garbage in the air and not charge them to clean it up and take it away? So this is their refuse bill, if you will. There's $105 a ton, 100 to do it, and $5 a ton to administer the program. Now, that's called direct air capture. We can talk more about it. There are three plants operational in the world right now. Someday there's going to be 10,000 or more around the world. Methane's much mm-hmm. tougher. Methane cannot be sucked out of the air. It operates at too high an altitude. And um, a lot of people confuse that, they, that. There's different numbers thrown around, but the, the most commonly accepted scientific definition is that methane is 60 to 80 times more heat absorbing in the atmosphere than is CO2. So you're talking 60 to 80 times more virulent. And it's at a higher elevation, and it's dispersed, which means you can't suck it out of the air with Director capture. So literally, that requires a geoengineering solution, which DAC also is. But this, ins- ins- and we believe in the academy, we've written a paper on this. We believe there is a way to do it using uh, erecting um, sheet, basically sunshades, up around 300 miles in the air in an orbit, in geosynchronous orbit, uh, to block a portion of the incoming radiation of the sun that's hitting the uh, equator, which is the maximum point of absorption of heat, and blocking it temporarily, and then being able to remove those shades one at a time as the planet starts to cool. Because once the planet starts to cool, then the methane will stop coming out of the ocean. In fact, it'll go back into what's called a hydrate structure, it'll become solid again. So I don't want to go into too much, there's a great paper called the Methane Accelerator, uh, it's a white paper we wrote, which means it's a scientific paper, it's been well reviewed by the scientific uh, uh, peer. Uh, In fact, I got a tremendous compliment from Dennis Bushnell, the chief scientist at NASA, who said, quote, you nailed it, close quote, in terms of the paper. It's heavily footnoted. It's all there for people to see. And on the last page, we talk about the Earthshades, which is what we call an Earthshades uh, proposal. Uh, And we'll be putting out a a little movie on that and and another paper on Earthshades in the not-too-distant future. Having said that, that's what you have to do to tackle climate change. Now, as to the 100 businesses that are contributing that much damage. Clearly, we know which businesses they are. We're talking about fossil fuel businesses. And we're talking about the businesses that are built, like Coke Industries, off of fossil fuel. Whether it's plastics, uh, artificial fertilizers, etc. Pesticides. There's a a whole slew of things that come out of fossil fuel. And my belief is that the only thing that ought to come out of a barrel of, of oil is sulfur drugs for human health. There should not ever be, you should never burn something that took millions of years to make and destroys the planet in the process, or destroys the biosphere in the process. So we must stop immediately. If we had a carbon tax, it'd go away quicker than you can shake a stick. And without a carbon tax, it's obviously difficult to rein these people in because with their vast resources that they've pilfered from the public with licenses to extract our resources and then charge us to sell them back to us again as the public, there's so much power and lobbying power in that aggregation, that you get this, in, uh, this is an obscene statement. We took and we are permitting genocide of the Kurds because we took 1,000 soldiers, only 1,000 soldiers, we're maintaining order for the entire boundary between Turkey and Syria so the Kurds can survive. Our allies who lost eleven to 12,000 men in battle and got 30,000 wounded. And instead of those 1,000, we're sending 1,500 to Saudi Arabia because, quote, they will pay us for them is what the president said. And on top of that, we just sent 100 special forces back into Syria, into Kurdistan, to protect the oil fields, not the people. That says everything you need to know about the power of the oil companies.
3: Yeah. So you're talking about political political, and, and legal changes that would need to happen, carbon tax, et cetera. So if you look at the administration that we currently have, pulled out of the Paris Accord, rolled back environmental regulation, voiced strong support for fossil fuels fuels, uh, either because the administration sees climate change as something that's not influenced by human activities or because they simply want to cater to a more traditional constituency. Uh, We still see a sizable part of the US population and, and government to support the same belief that our actions aren't really the cause of climate change. How can we change that? And what do you see as the reason so many aren't on board? With okay, wait, you know, I'm, I'm
10: going to put this in context. You know, sometimes, Peter, you get too close to a thing. It's kind of like it obscures what's really going on. So let's, pu- let's put this into context. In the year 1492, 99.999999999% of the entire global population thought the Earth was flat, right? Mm-hmm. One guy, Columbus, three ships. He goes, I don't think that's true. I don't think there's a giant monster that's going to eat me on the way, and I don't think I'm going to fall off the edge. I'll take my chances. Not everybody immediately let go of the flat earth theory, as it was called, for a long time, a couple of generations, actually. Mm -hmm. But you can't find a person walking the planet today, well, maybe a few, but (laughs) they are very few who would espouse, quote, the flat earth theory, close quote, because there is no flat earth theory. There could be a flat earth religious belief, but I could worship a stick, too. So a flat earth theory is merely a religious belief disguised as a scientific uh, belief. So there's nothing scientific about it because it's it's totally ridiculous. The same thing is true of climate change. So what I always recommend to people who are in this conversation, they go, you know what? If you don't think climate change is real, I really don't have time to talk to you. I've got to talk to people who aren't practicing religion disguised as science. So if you don't believe it, God bless. I'm not going to try and convince you because that's a religious belief and I'm not a preacher. I'm a businessman and an economist. So if you believe that, I can't really help you. In addition, if you don't think it's human-caused, you haven't done your homework. You have not been studying. It's just like, if you really think Jesus walked with the dinosaurs, you've got a problem in science. Your religion may be fine for you, but you've got a problem in science. You want to know the age of the universe? or The, for the, the, the Earth? Do carbon dating on a rock, right? That's science. So I don't like to get ca- I don't like to get caught up in people's religious beliefs, and that's what climate change denying denying is, and why people subscribe to it is for all the reasons people have always subscribed to yesterday's nostrums, out of fear of tomorrow's new awareness. So you know, how many years did we teach people because we thought it would take humors from their body and cure their disease, only to find out we were killing them? That went on for quite a long time, more than a few generations. And if you said it to day, yeah. would, you, would you like me to leech you, Peter? What's your quick answer? What are you, crazy? And I go, no, I believe it. They, they, in my church, they teach if I leech, I leech you, uh, you will take the devil out of your bloodstream, and you know, God will come in. And my answer to that is, great, that's your religion. It's got nothing to do with medical science.
3: So when you, look at, when you look at the political system, if you look at Washington, for example. Europe is probably not much different these days. Uh, it's, it's much more of a religion of uh, exchanging beliefs by partisanship and holding up beliefs than, than believing the science and making sound decisions. How, how can that be changed?
10: Well, actually, it's, it's one more thing, too. Don't, don't, don't skip past the most important part. You are never going to get mm-hmm. somebody who owns a bordello in Las Vegas to tell you that um, prostitution is a bad thing. It's his business. Mm-hmm. you're not going to get the fossil fuel companies with all their power. And we know they've been writing internal memos since at least the 70s about climate change, and they knew it was Exxon has the memos. So you've got to remember, it, 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 it's not just what people think. It's what's causing them to think that. And the money has all been amassed on one side of the table. And so when you have all that capital masked up that's then able to influence legislation at not only the federal but the state and local level, Your problem is that you have to deal with that power aggregation because it's causing people to believe things left to their own devices where just the information is neutral they would never believe. So the power to control the way people think, and I think the guy who first discovered this in the modern era who was a genius at it was Herman Goebbels. I mean, he was -hmm. was the Fuhrer's propagandist, right? And he said, you know what, you want people to listen to you? You just tell a lie and tell it bigger, and the more often you tell it, the more chances are it'll be believed. And you see that with the current administration. I mean, an administration that's been caught documenting 15,000 lies at this point in three years, I mean, that's like, you know, that's like, what, 100 a day? I mean, it's it's, it's really really 30 or 40 a day, 50, I haven't done the math, but it's insane, right? But what? that's what you do. So if you keep screaming, uh, the Democrats are out to lynch me, which I, think, I find personally very offensive given the history of lynching in America, that, that you would use that word to describe a constitutional process or that you would say uh, that you, you're this, this phony emoluments clause thing you talk about. Okay? That is what sometimes is referred to as gaslighting. Now, I don't know if your listeners know the ter- what the term gaslighting means, but if you look it up in the dictionary, it relates to a thing that happened in the 40s to a woman who basically her husband was causing her to go crazy because he kept telling her he, he-, he-, he controlled her outer reality to the point where he drove her crazy. You follow me? In words, he convinced mm-hmm. he-, he was able to create conditions, so she convinced herself she was crazy when she wasn't. That's what gaslighting is. And that's what you've got going on right now in a pandemic way at the U.S. government level, and to a lesser extent, in other parts of the world, I might add. So what we want to do is be careful of what we believe and why. So if you want to know what you need to believe in China, they'll tell you. The party will let you know. They'll even tell you the why from their point of view. And they'll also tell you, if you tend to resist, we'll kill you, or put you in jail forever. Or if you're an Ugar, we'll we'll put a million of you behind bars until you come to your senses. So you've you got to look at the power aggregations. You can't just look at the, what people claim to believe, because you've got to look at how did that get in their head and who's been putting it there, and what have they been spending to do it, and how much controlling of the environment is going on in order for that to happen.
3: So getting back to claiming your own power and leadership and information Um, So I want to bring it back to the business world, though, because uh, this is a section about climate change and business. So I'm curious, if if I run an organization, maybe a software firm, and I'm a leader in a software company, for example, that's not directly involved with the environmental sector, consulting firm, software company, um, what what can I do to best support the environment? Maybe through my operations or influence on employees or the community. What would you suggest for leaders to do?
10: First of all, I think every company should realize that it's an aggregation of individuals, and those are whole people. So if you want them to come and work for you uh, like slaves, like a Simon Legree, um, you're probably not going to have a very successful company. You're much better off attracting employees who believe that they are related to the outside world and want to do something about it and see their role in your company as part of how that happens. Now, it can be indirect. Uh, For example, I know of a firm that gives every single employee – one week off a month, to donate to the public any way they see fit for non-profit purposes. That's particularly generous. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've Mm -hmm. been, Peter, aware of this concept in the religious world where they tithe 10% uh, in a church, for example, to the church. Mormons typically do a very good job of that.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I believe in tithing
10: time. Pardon me? Yeah,
3: the Mormons still do that, I was saying. Mm -hmm.
10: Yeah, And, and so I believe in tithing my time as well as my money. So the reason I have had two full-time jobs since 1981 is because I believed it was my job to work on these things for a dollar a year, and it was my job to figure out a way to make a living. And magically, what happened is everything I've done in the last 40 years was a blend of the two, which made me more money than I ever would have guessed. So part of it is seeing what your role is as a citizen. One of my favorite examples for business is They they say there was a golden age of Greece, right? The age of Pericles. And they say Mm -hmm. why that happened was because self-appointed businessmen sat on the steps of the Acropolis. And as the elders of Athens talked about how they wanted to run their city-state and did. They didn't get paid for it. They weren't elected. They were self-appointed. But they were the commercial entity of their day. I believe that sense of responsibility for the whole of society, which is built into the Academy, World Business Academy logo, responsibility for the whole, is trying to hearken back to that day. So I see every business as having responsibility to society, and that has now been embedded in what we talked about earlier, the, 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 the new position of the business roundtable. So for me, every business can make a contribution to the common good. Some are in a position to make... More of a benefit, more benefit, others less. But nobody is a bystander. This, the climate change issue is so large and so pervasive, it is not a spectator sport. You're in the game whether you know it or not. And if you don't know it pretty soon, it's going to come get you. I'll give you a quick story of a guy who's in business for 39 years down in, Alabama, in Georgia. And, and he is a guy who relies on rain because in Georgia during the summertime, you get enough rain that you would never think of putting in an irrigation system. And the guy's corn crop is totally failed. He was on CBS uh, like two weeks ago. And he's walking through the fields, and he's got a pretty thick accent. And the interviewer is saying, so, you know, what happened? He says, I don't know. So I've been doing this for 39 years. I've never seen nothing like this, and I, I just don't know what to make of it. My entire crop is ruined. I can't harvest it entirely. And the and the commentator would have the presence of mind. Say, well, what do you think is happening? He goes, I'm beginning to think some of that stuff they're talking about climate change might just be real. Now, what do you think convinced the people in New York City about climate change? Superstorm Sandy, because it got up to 39. Sandy, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So, so you're saying that every business is in the business of is in the, is in the business of climate change because we're all impacted
10: Absolutely. by it
3: sooner or later. Mm-hmm.
10: Correct. Every farmer in Nebraska has been impacted by it. Everybody who lives downriver on the Mississippi is impacted by it. Everybody who lives in Dallas, Texas, where you would never expect to see what an F three, F four tornado in downtown Dallas—that's pretty amazing. So you know this is going on constantly all around us, globally too. I might add.
8: Yeah. So you have um... no
10: choice. There are there are no spectators. It is absolutely everybody's in the game.
3: Yeah. So to bring it back to the agenda of, of large corporations, I, I was just speaking at a conference to a, a group of senior executives. Uh, they all run their business. They're all um, having to fulfill shareholder returns. They all have their problems about attracting millennials, all their day-to-day problems. Um, environmental changes are not on their day-to-day agenda un- until they become that, that part. So how can we bring it in our day-to-day Stress in our day to day hectic to the forefront of our mindsets as a leader.
10: Well, if you believe, and you should if you don't, that we've got 11 years to turn this around, and I think that's optimistic. I don't think we have 11 years. But if you believe we have as little as 11 years to turn this around, or civilization as you know it's going to disappear, I would say you better get on pretty quick. It's sort of like telling me. You know your your building is not fire-safe, but it hasn't caught fire yet, even though if when it does, it's going to go up like a torch. Uh, I believe that the issues are so real that if you are not aware of them, you are not paying attention to fundamental data which will control the effect of your business and probably its survivability within 15 years. Now, who starts a business thinking it's going to end in, 12, in 11 to 15 years? Nobody. So y- y- you don't want to be in a situation where you're not paying attention to the most important thing happening in your life. And frankly, if you have children, how could you even think for a moment you'd be willing to let this go all down before they can be adults, or if you have grandchildren, or just nephews and nieces, or frankly just little people you like? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense if the issue is that big, and it's really easy to find out that it's that big. So I would say the final point would be, I don't care how big your company is, if you're as big as Unilever and you're Paul Pullman, you take the time out of your busy day. You still have to do shareholder return. He did a great job for 12 years. You still have to do new business development. He did a great job. If you look at um, every index of executive performance, Paul was one of the top executives in the world. You'd agree with that, right? Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Yes.
10: Okay, and he was the leader of the business community, in Paris for the climate accords because he knew that that was every bit as important as that next product he was going to launch or the next ice cream he'd bring up for Ben & Jerry.
3: Yeah, so to bring it back uh, on a positive note, maybe as a concluding question, this is a daunting thing that's a Democrat's sword that's hanging over us here. But there's also a huge business opportunity in this, obviously, because we're facing this humongous transition in our in our world. And wherever there's a big transition, there's a huge opportunity. So, can you speak that for organizations?
10: Absolutely. Uh, speak to, to that, and Peter, thank you for that. Because I tell this to people all the time. One of the reasons I'm no longer actively starting businesses and running them is because I get so many things cross my desk now—opportunities for people to make gazillions of dollars using the new renewable energy sources, uh, designing the world of tomorrow. You you cannot believe the wealth that we'll create. I'll give you one image, one picture. What was it like in the world before the Industrial Revolution? What was our collective economy like? And what was it like 25 years later? And the answer is inconceivably bigger, right? Like Mm -hmm. more than 10x.
3: Exponentially. Why?
10: Mm -hmm. Exponential. So that's what's going to happen again as we redesign this, this opportunity, I call it up to reverse the damage we've done to the biosphere, is so enormous, the amount of money you can make and will make is massive. So I always invite business people who are looking for opportunities to invest money in the new energy technologies and the new, and the new social technologies. I said, come on, give me a call. I'll link you up with someone who sent me a proposal because I'm not in the business of funding them anymore. I'm now refereeing. I'm using my time and my talent to vet things so I can see, okay, this is something that needs to get done. When the right guy knocks on the door, the right woman, I'll I'll give it to them to go do. And so I believe that the opportunities have never been greater because the challenge has never been greater. And what happens with challenge is that business is uniquely capable of executing against challenge. The bigger the challenge, the better the execution, the more money you make. It's a pretty simple equation. And when you think of disruption... Okay, Nobody in the world, in the computer industry, was willing to talk to Steve Jobs, let alone fund his silly idea for a personal computer. The rest, as they say, is history. I could say the same thing about the cloud. I could say the same thing about a half a dozen different things, okay? Including no one thought that you could possibly walk the streets of New York much past 1910 because the horse manure would be so deep you wouldn't be able to walk. That's a true story, by the way. So, you, 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 and then along came the car, right? So, I'm, I'm just saying to you, you need to look at the opportunity not the crisis because is there a symbol in China where, where it, it, crisis and opportunity are uh, are the flip side of, of um, the mm-hmm. same symbol I think they are same, same symbol. Uh, anyway, so, yeah so look at crisis and opportunity and here we are the huge opportunity Find people like us at the World Business Academy that do it as a non-profit or find somebody that's good at it in the private equity world, the venture capital world, or the investing world. But get involved. This is a great game to play because it's easier to make money at this game, frankly, than it is to try and compete directly with a steel mill.
1: Mm.
3: So on on that note, uh, that's a good note to stop here. Thank you so much, Ronaldo, for your input. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for these insights.
10: Oh, thanks, Peter, for having me.
4: When the hate comes, let there be love. When the night falls, let there be peace. When
11: the dark Who are the evolutionary leaders? The evolutionary leaders in service to conscious evolution, a project of the Source of Synergy Foundation, are a community of visionary authors speakers, scientists, social activists, spiritual leaders, and futurists who are on the cutting edge of the current evolution of human consciousness. This evolutionary leap is vital at this critical moment in time when humanity must choose a different path based on caring for one another and for the planet that gives us life. This is the time for a new kind of leader to step forward so that together we can forge a bright new future for all. There are many well-known evolutionary leaders in our circle and some whose work is behind the scenes. But all are highly creative leaders in their own field, thinking outside the box and encouraging others to expand their worldview into new dimensions of vision and action on behalf of all humanity. Members of the Evolutionary Leaders community are partnering on various events and initiatives. Evolutionary leaders are forming synergy circles across shared interest areas, such as education, science and spirituality, and conscious business, as well as local synergy circles as a way for thought leaders and activists to join their genius in exciting activities publications, and online conferences that will also include the public. And the Evolutionary Leaders will have a collective book coming out through a major publisher in 2020. So stay tuned. Are you part of the evolutionary community? Everyone at the edge of the current transformation of consciousness is invited to visit EvolutionaryLeaders.net. And sign the call to conscious evolution. You'll receive our newsletter, The Edge, to keep you up to date. We are all in this together, and your contribution is vital to the whole. On behalf of the evolutionary leaders, thank you.
0: One people will.
1: Well, thanks, Steve, Peter, and Deborah for joining me up front to introduce and contextualize this first of two Voice America specials on Conscious Business for a Flourishing World. These have really been amazing and formative discussions today with Dr. David Sloan Wilson, Paul Pullman, and Ronaldo Brudico. And I want to close out this first special with notes about the second special, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World 2, and some other important announcements. First, again to our audience, we call your attention once again to the first issue of our new magazine imprint, Conscious Business. It's entitled Conscious Business for a Flourishing World and will appear soon as we close out 2019. You'll be able to find it at www.issuu.com lightonlight and at www.lightonlight.us. And remember to join us also for our next Voice America special entitled Conscious Business for a Flourishing World 2, which will feature further discussions with Steve, Peter, and Deborah up front, and then interviews with thought and business leaders, Doctors Jude Kuravan, Irvin Laszlo, and Ken Wilber. These programs will be at the directory on our Voice America show page and also noted at www.lightonlight.us. At the end of our Conscious Business for a Flourishing World 2, I'll be joined once again by Steve, Peter, and Deborah for a wrap-up, and I look forward to future plans from Humanity's team, the Conscious Business Institute, and the Evolutionary Leaders. In the meantime, I invite all of you to take a look at the activities that are going on worldwide from the partnership of which we're all a part, Unity Earth, which can be found at www.unity.earth. Check out there all the activities that are projected for the Road to 2020 and the 2020 caravans of unity across America, Europe, and other parts of the world. So we'll see you soon for the Conscious Business uh, for a Flourishing World 2 and for our premier issue of our new magazine imprint, Conscience Business.
0: I search my way through Try to find a piece to save. Was it a hurricane? Was it rain? Was it a warm tsunami wave? We think we're thick with courage. That's an insult to the brave. While all our so mortgaged, and our minds are media slaves.